discussion with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good evening and welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolaku, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. I'm a licensed clinical psychologist, so you can call in with any questions related to clinical psychology, including any emotional or psychological issues, parenting issues, and relationship issues as well. You can also follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on iTunes. Again, our studio number, 310-441-0555. Before I get into the book of the week from this past week, the book of the week for this week is Super Forecasting, The Art and Science of Prediction by Philip E. Tetlock and Dan Gardner. Super Forecasting, The Art and Science of Prediction Philip Tetlock and Dan Gardner. Again, another book I have judged by its cover. I don't know much about it. Just uh, read a little bit about it on the cover and the back cover. So literally judging the book by its cover, but we'll see how that book is and I'll share it with you on next Monday's show. All right, the book of the week from this past week that I'll talk about tonight is Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as if Your Life Dependent on It by Chris Voss with Tal Roz, Never Split the Difference. And this book I mentioned was um, recommended to me by my brother Parham, and he does help me a lot with the books, actually, and make a lot of suggestions. Of course, I'm always looking for suggestions, and many of you do send them to me through social media, so thank you for that. Uh, But this was another one that he had mentioned to me. He said he has read several books on negotiation. He thought this was the best one or one of the best ones he had read, so he recommended it to me. Um, And I did enjoy the book and got a lot out of it in reading the different ways he talked about uh, how to make yourself better at negotiating. And he has worked in the FBI and lots of different high-level agencies and positions in negotiating and shares stories. And each chapter begins with a story of a real negotiation situation, often involving hostages, and how it played out to display one of the lessons in the book. One thing I did like about his approach to negotiation is that it was very psychologically minded in the sense that it wasn't just about trying to overpower or bully your opponent or even manipulate them, so to speak, although there definitely is some manipulation in trying to get them to your answer or your position, but it was much more about recognizing your opponent as a full human being, another person who has wants, needs, and actually to become better at negotiating, we have to try to understand them better, not just stay in our own mind, but be able to put ourselves in their shoes as well. Uh, And so it reminded me of how we often see people who are working with, let's say, terrorists, and they say you have to torture them, and you have to treat them with aggression and bully them to get information out of them. But really, they find that what yields better results is to build a relationship with them. That if you build rapport, build trust and a connection, you're more likely to get 
information and more likely to get valid information than if you use torture and aggressive techniques to try to get information out of them. Similarly, with negotiation, yes, sometimes you have to play hardball. So he by no means comes off as a soft person, and he mentions that once or twice in the book. But you get a lot further, and especially get a lot further even getting what you want by seeing your opponent, seeing the counterpart, as someone who you want to understand as a full person and human being. And I did enjoy that approach that he had. Uh, although even with the title, I, I actually don't like the title, Never Split the Difference. Negoti- I don't mind the negotiating as your life depended on it. That does make it dramatic. But even the Never Split the Difference, I can understand when you are a hostage negotiator, um, you can't split the difference in that you want half the hostages to die or for each hostage to have half of themselves left or remaining. Uh, I'll mention why I say it in that way. Um, That can't really work. So I understand that mindset. But I do think in lots of relationships, compromise is necessary. He does mention, and I'll touch on it probably at the end of the segment, that a lot of times we might compromise not actually because we think it's the best thing or it's actually the best solution, but just to avoid conflict. And that's not a good reason. But nonetheless, when it comes to being in a relationship with someone, especially your romantic partner who you're spending a lot of time with and interacting with a lot, I think there always has to be some level and understanding of compromise that comes into play. And the reason why I said the example of half of the hostages or half of their bodies remaining is he gives an analogy uh, to try to hammer this point home of never splitting the difference that I think it was his wife wanted him to wear brown shoes and he wanted to wear black shoes. And he said, well, if you split the difference, that means wearing one black shoe and one brown shoe. So he said, when you have that idea of splitting the difference, that should come to your mind, that it's like wearing one black and one brown shoe at the same time. And that idea of splitting the difference is essentially if I want to pay 10000 and you want 20000 if we split the difference, we meet at the middle and say 15000 But he's saying we should never have that mindset. But his analogy of the wearing one black and one brown shoe, although it's a good one to make you recognize, well, you should not go in with that mindset of splitting the difference. Um, at the same time, it could be that you wear black shoes one night and brown shoes another night, or two black shoes and two brown shoes on separate nights. And that reminds me, of, for example, if let's say one partner likes seeing horror movies and the other person likes comedies, well, it doesn't mean you have to watch half of the comedy movie and half of the horror movie to split the difference. You can watch two different movies on two different nights, one that one partner likes and one that the other one likes more, and that, that can work out okay. So again, sometimes in relationships, I think compromise does make sense. But as he puts it, if you come in with that mindset of splitting the difference that, okay, if I say 10 and they say 20, we should go to 15, you might not actually do everything you can to get the best deal for yourself, or there actually might be ways that you're limiting yourself. And that I do agree with. Uh, But I'll get into some of the techniques or ideas he brings up in the book. One of the first ones he mentions is mirroring, which is exactly as it sounds in a way, just reflecting what your counterpart is saying. And overall, that's something that he, it seems to mention, he mentions a lot, that you are listening a lot more than just talking. Because although a lot of negotiation techniques come from this hardball, aggressive way of establishing what you want, and you're going to determine what's happening going forward, as he explains uh, over and over in the book, when we listen, we actually get more information. And when you're negotiating, 
were dealing with a lot of incomplete information or a lot of information about your counterpart or their situation or what's going on behind the scenes that you're not aware of. So if we actually sit back and listen or ask the right questions, we can get a lot more information from them to then better understand what's going on and that can guide us and aid us in a lot of ways. So when we mirror, we're reflecting back what the person is saying. And a few of these techniques, mirroring the next one I'll talk about is empathy, are very much psychologically minded, as I mentioned, and even things that happen in therapy. And of course, therapy is all about helping someone discover more about themselves, become more aware. So in that way, revealing more information in this sense to themselves, actually, things they might not recognize or know about themselves or getting deeper. And so by mirroring, you can help elicit that by, for example, just someone saying, you know, I got really upset when she said that. And you can just say something as simple as, oh, you got really upset? And then pause and give silence and give space. And then almost always the person will then elaborate elaborate a little bit more on that concept or whatever it is they're talking about. Yeah, it's just that she always has done this or it made me feel this or whatever else might be going on. But just by the simple act of mirroring, we can get a lot more information after out of the person we're talking to. And again, in this book, it's presented very much, uh, although he has more of a open approach or not as much as uh, dominating approach as lots of negotiation books. It's still this mindset that the person you're talking to is your adversary. You're trying to get something out of them. He might not always say it in those ways, but that's definitely what you feel. Even the idea of never splitting the difference um, assumes that what you want is in some way right. And again, in a relationship, that's not always the case. And we have to be open to that and recognize that. But coming back to this idea of mirroring, if you just reflect back what the person is saying to you, uh, or asking them in a, almost using their own words and then give them silence. That's something that we often don't do. Give them that space. You'll see that they'll add a lot more to what's going on. And so he shares examples where by just doing that, you were, they were able to get a lot of important and vital information out of the person. And also the person feels heard and understood, which is very important in whatever interaction you're having, but even in a negotiation. He also mentions the importance of empathy, trying to really understand your counterpart's emotional situation or what they're going through. And even more important than that, labeling their emotion. And this can do lots of things to begin with when we label negative emotions. And he shares a study uh, done by Matthew Lieberman at UCLA. I read his book, Social, last year. Um, but he talks about how when people would label an emotion, just that act would make the amygdala, which is the part that is part of the brain that is more of the emotional center of the brain or one of the emotional centers, it makes it less active and engages more our frontal lobes or other parts of the brain involved in logic or reasoning or language, and it reduces that negative emotional activity, which is good in general, but also if you're having a negotiation, you can help calm your counterpart down. But this is what can be so helpful in therapy. Oftentimes people will say, well, who cares if I go to a therapist and just talk about my feelings? How is that going to help? It doesn't change my life or my situations. And yes, in the therapy room, you're never going to really change your life. You might make decisions to change your life, but you're not going to actually make tangible changes. And very often you talk about things where things can't be changed. If your family member has passed away, we can't bring that person back to life. But we know that talking about the feelings can be helpful. And this is one of those ways, just by labeling the emotion, either yourself 
or someone else and you recognizing it can be very, very calming. And so this is also something parents can do when you see your child is crying because their their toy broke. You say, oh, you're, you're really sad or you're really frustrated that your toy broke. And just that labeling of their emotion can be calming for them. It also helps teach them these words which can help them further themselves to then be able to label it in the future but it can be calming just to label that feeling so he says even in the course of negotiation if you're able to accurately label your counterparts emotions that can be very telling it sometimes get underneath what's going on and as he mentions we often think of negotiations as the surface again i want to sell for uh, 20 or you want to buy for 10 and it's just about these terms but there's always much more going underneath the surface there's feelings of pride that might be involved, uh, embarrassment, shame, fear, anxiety, um, different motivations about how we look or how we're going to look or we have to answer to this person or that person or whatever else might be going on. And so by getting to those underneath parts, we can do a lot better job in negotiating. And also, again, we might unearth some very important information that could change the whole um scope or the whole direction of how the negotiation will go and he actually uses the term black swan for finding these game changing and negotiation changing pieces of information and he says in every negotiation there are a few of these that we might not know about sometimes even the counterpart might not know how significant it is but if we can unearth them it could be a big a big deal and actually that term he uses black swan um, the book of the week from last week was written by uh, Nassim Taleb, Skin in the Game, but the other book of his I'd read was called The Black Swan and about how sometimes we can't uh, predict some very, very rare events from happening until they happen. And, and then afterwards we try to make sense of it, but we have a hard time predicting them. And it's similar to how people thought all the swans were white until finally someone discovered that there was such a thing as a black swan. And so it had this effect of bringing to mind sometimes we think something is not even possible or that we can expect something to always be the same way or to go a certain way, but it might not be the case. But he says there's always these black swans in every negotiation that we want to try to unearth because once we do, it can significantly change the course of things, sometimes giving us leverage, which can be very helpful. Um, something else he talked about, which I thought was interesting, is he says there's three types of yeses. Now, in a lot of sales and negotiation books or if you read about different techniques, they'll talk about how important it is to try to get the counterpart to say yes, to keep getting them to say yes. And sometimes we'll even coax you into saying yes. For example, if you're sitting together, say, would you like a glass of water? Or some other question that the answer is yes to, thinking that this is going to get you more in the affirmative mindset or think we're more together and you're more likely to then get to yes later on. Um, but as he puts it, actually, these feeling or the feeling we can get when someone does this is we feel like we're getting impinged on or someone is uh, invading us, so to speak, and we become defensive. So actually these yeses that we think are good can make someone feel more guarded and they might push back more. So he actually says no is a good thing. We want to make the person say no, which can be counterintuitive to lots of people. But um, as I'll explain he says a yes isn't always such a good thing. Again, it can make people guarded, but he says there's three types of yeses and really only one of them is good. The first one is a counterfeit yes. People will just say yes, not because they really mean it, 
but just to agree with us to maybe get more information or to leave the door open for them to do other things to avoid conflict. But it's definitely not a real yes, like they mean it, but just to, um, it's a counterfeit yes to get us to feel like they're with us or feel like they can lead us on to more information that will be important to them. The second one is confirmation. And this is just a yes to confirm or agree. We're not even sure we want to say yes, but more here, even more strongly, it's about avoiding conflict and just we're so used to saying yes that we usually will say yes and then we'll think later on. So it might not be as manipulative as a counterfeit one, but we might be just saying yes without really meaning it. And then the third one is the real one we want, which is commitment, an actual yes. Like I'm going to say yes to this and agree to it and go forward with it. And that's the one we want. But when we get so fixated on just trying to get any yes out of them, we might not realize that we're getting one of those first two, a counterfeit or a confirmation. And we might think we have an agreement when really we don't. So he says, actually, we want to get to know. And also, as he mentions, no is not a final answer or a failure. A lot of times, no is just our instant reaction because we don't like change or we're not sure yet or we're not comfortable, so we just say no. And a lot of times, teenage parents know this with their kids. Uh, teenage kids, sorry, know this with their parents, that they say, oh, mom, dad, I want to go out to this party Friday night. And they say no, because quickly that no is coming from the anxiety of them going out, the fear, the discomfort that it brings up, and they just want to say no. But as teenagers often know, if they keep exploring and getting deeper and finding what's going on, finding why is it a no, you can sometimes reduce those anxieties or fears or discomforts that came up and then get to a yes. So as he puts it, don't be so afraid of no and actually even embrace no and try to get the person to say no. Because once we say no, it is a word that helps us define what we do and don't want. No, I don't want these things, which then opens up the door to what they do want. But if we just get those uh, counterfeit or confirmation yeses, we don't really know what they want and don't want. So he actually says, which is counterintuitive to most negotiation techniques and sales techniques, that no is a good thing. You want to get them to say no. And um, I'll conclude with one paragraph at the end of the book that I really liked, because as I was saying before, we shouldn't avoid conflict. And a lot of times even in saying yes, it's to avoid conflict or to just split the difference and compromise we do it to avoid conflict. But here's one of the last pages in the book. He says, and so I'm going to leave you with one request, whether it's in the office or around the family dinner table, don't avoid honest, clear conflict. It will get you the best car price, the higher salary, and the largest donation. It will also save your marriage, your friendship, and your family. And I really agree with that, that we can't avoid conflict. You need conflict in order to have any relationship survive. We need to, we're going to disagree. We're going to have different feelings, different wants, different desires. And if we don't talk about them, we can't stay close and we can't have genuine relationships. But too often out of a fear of conflict, out of a fear that conflict means the end of a relationship where the person is going to dislike us or won't love us or will hate us, or worse, we'll just end the whole relationship completely. We avoid the conflict. So with that, I totally agree with him. We can't avoid conflict. We can't be afraid of conflict. Conflict is actually good. When we handle conflict well with our loved ones and with our partners, we actually create stronger bonds, a better relationship. And as I always say, it's not about if you fight, it's how you fight. We need to have those disagreements because that's just a natural part of two or more human beings being next to each other, being in relationship with each other. We're going to have disagreements, different wants, different desires, different feelings. 
we have to be able to communicate those things. It's about resolving them that really matter. So I like that message that he had at the end of the book, that we can't be afraid of conflict. It's a necessary thing, a good thing, and we have to just make sure we handle it well. So that was Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. And again, the book of the week for this week is Super Forecasting, The Art and Science of Prediction by Philip Philip Tetlock and Dan Gardner. All right, studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Let's go to a caller. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Yes, Dr. Farid. Yes, hi. Thanks for calling. Yes, uh, uh, thank you so much to receive my call. My pleasure. Um, I, I got divorced several months ago, and I cannot get over it. Hmm. I cannot, I cannot still believe it. I'm divorced, and I've been trying to reach out to my ex. And to see if we can get back together, and she didn't accept it. I don't know what to do with myself. Mm. Well, divorce is a very difficult thing to go through for almost anyone, but you say I'm having a hard time accepting it or moving on, um, but I think it's because you haven't accepted it, which it seems you still want to be back with her. So, of course, you're not going to move on when you're, you don't want to be divorced and you want to be back with her. Uh, so let me get a few background questions. How old are you? How old is she? And how long were you guys married? Well, I'm 60. She's uh, 48. And we were married for <clears throat> 28 years. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what was yeah. the reason for the divorce? The reason was uh, I I had to be separate from her for a while because... Uh, we we had a uh, property in another another city, and we were getting behind of the payment on that, and I had to set up the business there to save the property. That was the last piece of the property we had to save for our um, basically retirement. And and she was living in another city. We were about four hours away from each other, and. Uh, and when I went there, and um, what happened, um, because well, the business was pretty slow, and I was trying to build it up and be able to catch up with the, you know, with the mortgage, we were behind and all those nine yards. And I, I told her that, hey, you need to work and take care of your expenses, and because I cannot afford to pay expenses where... We were behind the mortgage and expenses where I'm living. And um, after I said that, uh, that time she was living with my son, and none of them were working, and they, but they got forced to get to work, and they start to, you know, make a living. And by that time, they told me um, I cannot go to visit them anymore to that the apartment they were living because since I'm not paying any share of that apartment, I'm not allowed to go there. And uh, actually, that's my son told me, uh, and it was very really unexpected, actually. Uh, How old is your son? 
right now he's 24. 24, okay. So he was that, so this is like a, how long ago did this all happen? Uh about a year and a year, year and a half ago. Okay. So I'm wondering if what was going on that if you guys had this kind of a relationship that it would fall apart from this it tells me something was already missing in the marriage. Okay, I got sick. I got I got diagnosed with cancer. Mm. And after that, I got a very bad depression. I went through very deep depression. And in one point, I even uh, attempted suicide. Mm. And I got saved well, with a miracle. And um, and even uh, I spent a, a week, they, by force, they sent me to the mental hospital. Mm -hmm. And after that, I was released, you know. And uh, when I came out, I, I went under so much debt because I had to borrow money. So because uh, she wasn't working and my son wasn't working and, you know, and I had to keep borrowing money and borrowing money. And I got to the point I wasn't able to, to borrow any more money. And I said, well, the only way is uh, I go back and continue working because uh I stay here, I'm not doing any good. So I went back and I reopened my business in, uh, in our property to rebuild again. And obviously in the beginning, I had some trouble of uh, making a lot of money, but I was starting to rebuild. Meanwhile, she got the job and he got the job and they start you know, paying, paying their own expenses. And once in a while, she was coming to visit me, you know, because she said, you cannot go over there when I come to visit you. She came a few times. And but that support I still can't get. So, Shing, you're not allowed to come here because you don't pay rent here? Yes. Okay. But but you see what I'm saying? That that seems to me like something was missing in your marriage if it seems like she saw you as just a paycheck or just as money. Your only value was making money, or else you didn't have value. And so I don't know if that was something that was present from the beginning of your marriage. When you guys got married, if I'm doing my math right, you were 32 and she was 20. Yes. So I don't know if there's some... I was provider. Okay. I was, I was very well provided. Yeah, but so maybe and... there was that was a, a bigger part of the draw or the connection you guys had was there. Because from what I'm hearing, something clearly is missing that once you're not, there's not this partnership of we're in this together. And some of that you probably created too, where you were the provider. So she came to you for that. But still, it's clearly something was missing where when you weren't able to provide, you're not even allowed, the way you're describing it, allowed back in the house. It's like it's her house now because she's paying for it. Whereas when you were paying for it, it seems like it was your house and her house or her place. Um, and so... It does seem like your main source of being welcomed in this marriage was to provide. And if you weren't, then you weren't worth very much, unfortunately. Basically, that's how I felt. Yeah. And after, you know, we were separate for about a year and a half. Mm -hmm. uh, my son was gone to, to another city and, uh, and she was alone. And I told her, listen, uh, this is time to 
you know, to make up and get together, you know, because both are stronger, you know, uh, financially, because she got a very good job and she was making money. And, you know, I was, you know, coming back. And uh, can, can we talk about it? And she said, there's nothing to talk. And um, after, you know, I insist to talk, she said, no, there's nothing to talk. And I wonder, I said, well, if there's nothing to talk, let's, uh, I cannot continue be married and living alone. I can't do this anymore. Emotionally, mentally, I cannot take it. And I asked, uh, I told her, in that case, let's get divorced. And she says, okay, let's get divorced. So were you were you serious then, or was that a bluff? It was a bluff. Okay. Well, I mean, yeah, I always recommend. I, I tell people don't make make bluffs like that. But anyway, okay. Uh, although, happened. although, I mean, I w- I'd say don't make a bluff. But if she says yes to that, it's also telling us something. If she doesn't want to be in a marriage, I I wouldn't want you to be in a marriage where she doesn't want to be in that. But anyway, um, again, I wouldn't recommend making a bluff. I would be more direct about the problem. Uh, rather than to force someone to make a change. But anyway, so you said that. She said, let's get a divorce, and then the process started? Yeah, and then um, I said, well, okay, that uh, we set up the day, and I would go over there, and she said, okay, let's go over there. We go to the court, and we file it, and, you know, there's no fight. Let's get divorced. You know, there's no kids. There's nothing. You know, there's no, not, no assets to worry about it, and the property, we just leave it as it is until it gets settled. I said, okay. Then I go there, and then uh, the day I was supposed to go there, uh, because I was four hours away, I got there, like, around midday. By the time I got there, my plan was to go over there and see her and talk to her and convince her, you know, to, you know, let's see some uh, psychology, some, uh, I don't know, do something about it and make the things better. But by the time I got there, she had all the paperwork done and filed and put the paperwork in front of me. He said, you have 24 hours, go ahead. Next day you have to sign it and file it. Mm. You're done. Mm. And so this was a few months ago? That was like uh, several months ago. Okay. And I was, I was, I, I was freezed. Mm-hmm. I was speechless, and I was saying, hey, we're supposed to talk. There's nothing to talk. I'm happy the way I am, da 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 da, da. And Well, clearly okay. she'd made, you know, she'd made her decision. It seems like before you brought up the word divorce, she was already there. So although, again, I don't agree with making the bluff, it seems like she was already there. And money is a legitimate thing that it's one of the biggest reasons why couples fight and get divorced. So... It does come up a lot, but still in hearing you how you're talking, it seems like something was missing in the relationship, which is a real genuine loving connection from the beginning of the relationship. That was never there. But now we also have to ask ourselves why you're fighting so much for someone who doesn't seem to be loving you or giving you love or really valuing you in a way that you should be valued as anyone should be by their partner and so we're at a commercial break but i do want to continue our conversation so just hang on the line and we could talk a bit more about what happened but also about what you're going through and why you might be going through that and also what you can do going forward okay okay all right you're listening to in session with dr fatty we will be right back 
back before the break. We're with a caller. Let's go back to him now. Caller, are you still there? I'm here. Okay. Yes. So we were talking before the break about your the situation you were in. Um, so about seven months ago, you got divorced after a 28-year marriage, and you're saying how you're having a hard time to start off the call moving on. And as I mentioned, it seems very clear you haven't accepted it yet because you don't want to move on. You want you still want to be with your ex-wife. But what I was struck by was how much it seemed from what you were describing that she didn't love you and was not giving you love for you, but you still wanted to be with her. Now, let me ask you a question in a different way. If we asked her, why do you think she would say she asked for the divorce or wanted divorce? Well, one thing has happened, I think, meanwhile, I was away. She got into some relationship because right away the day that we signed the document, she received the document or signed. Uh, the next day, she posted in a Facebook with uh, some, some younger guy that she posted. The, the the picture that she's in relationship. Mm -hmm. I think that was it. I think. Well, maybe. Someone. Sure, but there, you know, but even that someone, and I'm not saying every affair starts because the relationship has a problem, but very often that can be the case. So I'm not saying it was okay if that's what she did. Although, if you guys were separated, depending on how you guys discussed that. It can be okay for people to date, depending on how you handle that. Um, but I still feel like something was missing. So I wouldn't say her dating this other person was the cause for the divorce. I would say there was probably other things going on which contributed to her dating someone else or wanting to be with someone else also that I'd want you to think about. Because I still get the sense from what you're saying that something very important was missing in this marriage and that was genuinely being in love with each other or being connected to each other i still don't get that well, okay once once happened uh, <clears throat> once uh, uh, we were we went to the one meeting it was a business meeting somewhere and uh, we met each other over there me and my ex and then after that we went to have a dinner and we were talking and she told me she accuse me that I'm seeing someone mm -hmm. that's where I'm staying and she was told that I'm dating someone and I I wasn't dating anybody and I said this is not true whoever told you that was a lie because I did not date I do not date anyone and she was uh, very upset very upset and she told me, you made me to be exposed to other people. And I really didn't get well, what the she... Maybe she meant by going away that uh, there was an, a loneliness or emptiness. I don't obviously want to speak for her, but that's that's what I would hear from that, that, that you were not there by having to go away. It just still seems like there was a lack of togetherness with you and her. And, yeah, but the thing was that they wouldn't. Uh, she wouldn't allow me to go there. She you know, she wouldn't what? Time. She wouldn't allow me to go and stay in her apartment for the long well, yeah. time. Yeah, uh, yeah. I don't know. I, I mean, it, what was going on? I don't know. Obviously, the details. But like I said, was this a great marriage? It doesn't sound like it. 
and it doesn't seem like you were getting loved by her. And I could understand being married for 28 years, a divorce is always going to be difficult. And it seems clear that you still want to be with her. But I hope you ask yourself, why do I want to be with her? Or let me ask you, why do you want to be with her? Uh, because uh, she's the mother of my children, and I love her the entire of my life. And I, you I, love her. Sorry, you love her. What? I love her so much, and I, I, I got away from my whole family because uh, she wasn't from my country. She was from another country, and and in the beginning of marriage, our marriage. Uh, nobody will agree with our marriage, and to save this marriage, I got away from the city that all my family were living, and I stay away from them to save our marriage. Mm. And I always love her. I always love her. I mean, she uh, she left me a few times for with a different reason. Uh, for each time was sometimes two months, sometimes four months, sometimes, you know, three months. But I always had the door open. I said, well, go do whatever you want to experience and, you know, go get relaxed and come back. And she did that a few times. What were, what were the reasons back then when you say go do what you need to experience or relax? What, what because, was... like, like one time she said, I want to go get the real estate license and I want to go see the market in another city I said well okay if that's the way you want it it's not the way to do it I mean you don't go another city to get a real estate license when you are living another city there's no point and but she said no I want to go on so did you guys have kids at that point yes 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 and she left you with the kids yeah how old were the kids Yeah, that's that's a little strange to me. Yeah, and I was the same with the kids, yeah. taking care of it. And once but there's I something, I, I, I feel like you keep, there's something in hearing you talk about these stories where you almost enjoyed being the victim to her doing these things. Not by enjoyed like it felt good, but something about that felt right. Because the way you say these stories, it, it just seems like you were want it's some of almost wanting it or accepting okay you can do whatever you want and thinking that means you love her but that's not necessarily the case that you can do whatever you want i know we talk about unconditional love but if your partner let's say disrespects you cheats on you physically abuses you you don't just say well my love is unconditional you can do whatever you want but it's almost in how you're saying it you're just like saying oh i love her so much almost like an unrealistic fantasy type of love that no matter what she did it's okay even if she doesn't love me, it's okay. Even if she doesn't treat me well or let me back into my home, it's okay. And there's something about you accepting that mistreatment or lack of love that I can't get a handle of what it is yet, but there's something there that in how you say this story, it seems like you're saying no matter what she would do, you would have accepted it. And I think you hear that as love, but I don't hear that as loving her. I hear that as you not loving yourself. Well, before that, I mean, we had a couple times case of divorce through the attorney and uh, very costly as a fact. 
and by the end we didn't get divorced. And um, one time uh, she filed divorce on me and with the attorney and just spent a lot of money. And uh, by the end when she realized it is not that much money she would get out of it, and she dropped it. And since uh, I had my kids, I didn't want them to be uh, without family and in a divorced family. So I told her, you know, we can come back anytime you want, and she came back. But that's the. Pre- then, but you see, even in how you say that, it's just like come back anytime you want, no problem, no issue. I mean, the way you're even describing it now, she just wanted a divorce to get money, and then when she saw there's no money and maybe there's more money in marriage, she wanted marriage. Now, I'm only hearing your side, but that's how you're describing it. And this is why I always say, and most people will say, we don't just stay together for the kids or assume that divorce is something bad. Sometimes divorce is the better option. And so, yes, is it bad to be in a divorced family? Yes, that has a pain. But being in a the wrong marriage and having your kids live through that can be worse. But there's something I keep hearing in how you're describing it, like you don't exist. And in a way, she made you feel that way, too, like you didn't exist outside of having money or making money. And then once you didn't have that, you had no value. But I think, unfortunately, at some level, you, you treat yourself that way. You don't give yourself enough. And and even I'm I'm recognizing something you said about your family and how you almost had to disown them or distance yourself from them both physically and emotionally in order to be with her and so now i can understand there's this cognitive dissonance this feeling of well i couldn't have given up my whole family for her and for this to get to divorce that would be a waste or that would make me feel bad or guilty or ashamed and going back to them or give them this notion that i told you so we told you this this marriage was wrong um, and so it seems like you're fighting that too much that because of that decision you made then and wanting to make sure you somehow prove that to be right, you're going to continue to make bad choices now and bad decisions for what's happening for your present and future. But that decision you made 28 years ago, you made then. Now you have to make the best decision. And it seems like she doesn't want to be with you, or as that's what she said. And from what you're describing, I don't think it's even good for you to be with her. I don't see how this is a good relationship for you to be in other than you feeling used to her or attached to her or feeling like she's like a drug that maybe you're just used to and you want to go back to that drug. I don't really see much reason for you to be with her. I mean, why would, why should you be with her if you wanted to explain that? I understand your point and I've been fighting myself that you don't need that. You don't need that drug. You're going to let it go. You're going to go on your life. But since I've been divorced, I haven't been able to settle down. I haven't been able to stay in one place. I just want to go, 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 go. I don't know how to how to get settled. Yeah. I know. Well, I think, you know, I understand that going back to her would feel like it would take away that pain, but... I sometimes use this analogy because I think it makes sense. It's like when you're uh, quitting a drug and you're going through withdrawals. The, one, the thing that quickly will make you feel better is going back to that drug, but that's the thing that's the worst for you long term. And I know you were talking about going to therapy with her and she refused, but I'm hoping that you're going to your own therapy right now. Are you doing that? No, I'm okay. not doing that. Okay. I, I would highly recommend that. And especially because you mentioned the suicide attempt and depression in the past, that's something you really want to take seriously is, is uh, 
seeing a therapist and, and are you taking any psychiatric medication right now? No, I don't. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to say you need it, but it would be something I would want you to consider also because where you're at, you, you can go back down into that depression if you're not already there and that can be a difficult path. And I don't see her as your solution. I see you as your own solution right now that you have to, to grow within yourself and heal yourself and figure out what's going on that you were in this marriage for 28 years, which sounds really painful and not, it seems like you weren't getting a lot from her. You keep talking about how much you love her. And I know I haven't asked you about everything and about a lot of the good times, but still it doesn't seem like there was a lot she was giving you other than a lot of pain and instability. She seems pretty unstable from how you're describing her and you know, leaving the kids at when they were 15 and 17 to pursue a real estate license in another city it sounds a little bizarre to me that when you have two teenage kids to leave them um, to go pursue something again sometimes something by force happens we have no other option and we might do something like that but this doesn't seem to be that situation so i think from talking to you that you don't think she's the right person for you but you feel like in this romantic way that i love her and i have to love her forever and i'm supposed to be with her forever but we might have to give up that dream that was never based in reality to begin with that maybe this is just more something in your fantasy than actually it was this beautiful love where it really was meaningful and we might have to accept that it wasn't as good as we thought it was but more than anything i would say get yourself in therapy immediately to help heal the pain and see what you can do to make sure you make the best decision going forward and you asked me to start this call, I can't get over this, but of course you're not going to get over something you or you haven't moved on because you haven't accepted it. You don't want to accept it yet. You'll never move on from something you don't accept. And so that's going to be the first step, but you'll have to accept that this is over. You're not going to get over it until you get to that point. Over has to be there. You have to get over it when it is over. So um, I hope you'll consider that immediately because I'm concerned about your well-being overall going forward from that and hopefully see what's keeping you in a relationship like this and thinking you deserve this. Um, I do have to wrap up the show for tonight, but thank you for calling. Wishing you all the best. Thank you so much, Dr. Okay. Nice talking to you. Have a great night. Oh, I hope so. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you to our caller there and to Amir here in the studio. And everyone listening out there, you've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Delakwi. Have a wonderful night.